publish, ref, impact, uh-uh, you care I, praxis. Public. And now, the two Ref. married doctoresses of unwrappable output in their rendition of uh-uh. LOL My Praxis. You care I? Praxis. Are you on campus? Yeah. Where's the picture? <laughs> it's, uh, it's up here. Uh, this is, is what I got Alex for her see? 30th birthday. It is a signed picture oh. of me. Um... <laughs> <laughs> A headshot. That was a headshot for an amateur musical, so uh, oh, it, all, it all makes sense. Perfectly um, on, on, on topic. On topic, yeah. <laughs> on brands. Almost as if I found this. There's no praxis. Like show. Praxis. Like no praxis. I know. I'm going to theatre in town and I completely forgot. <laughs> oh, nice. What are you seeing? It's called Major Labia. It's like, yeah, I know. Um, it's like a comedy women's night thing that they're trying out. And I was like, well, clearly, I need to do this. Like, Absolutely. Um, my partner is going, who's gay? Ooh. Oh, is she gone again? Yeah. She back? Oh, she's back. back. It's, it's catching up. So hopefully. Louisa's major labia getting in the way there. Yeah, my major labia just got all the quiver and stopped at the internet. <laughs> Do they do they engage with the you know the the oeuvre of Major Laser? Um, is that what they do? Do they rewrite the lyrics? Because they should Shakespearean, which is confusing. Oh. Like it, it, it's sort of like women in tights kind of oh. like vibes. So I'm not quite sure what what the energy is, but it looked chaotic and rude to me. T- tights are not <laughs> tights are not supportive of labia. Is there going to be like a sequel? Is that going to be Thrush? Like I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, wonderful. Yeah. So this this is the tone. It doesn't get better. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm already on message. It's fine. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Okay. Shall I kick off with the the bio yes. and then we can we can go on? Okay. All right. So here we go. You can correct us if anything is wrong on this, Hannah. But um, it's all from what we could find online. So if it is wrong, it's uh, it's not. Yeah. Our most of it uh, you wrote. <laughs> and we wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's out of date, um, you know, not our problem. Uh, <laughs> Hello and welcome to Law My Praxis. This week we are over the rainbow and travelling down the yellow brick road with Dr Hannah Robbins. Hannah is Assistant Professor in Popular Music at the University of Nottingham and specialises in musicals, uh, with a particular focus on the intersections between race and gender in the American musical. I don't mean this to disparage your work, it's more just that Louise and I have an ongoing issue with the fact that Louise brings up musicals every single episode. Um, And this is finally the first time that she's allowed to do so. So she's going to go nuts. Uh, So Hannah is currently working on a book focusing on the hit 1948 musical Kiss Me Kate and has worked on everything from Hamilton to Cole Porter. When not addressing the queer qualities of musical theatre, she co-curates the international network Black in Arts and Humanities and involved with a series of initiatives. Co-curates? Co-curates? You can say that. Oh, co-curates. That's it, co-curates. Shut up, Louise, you can't read. She co-curates the international network network oh my god you ruined me you fucked this up louise (laughs) i 
been in a 10 hour meeting. Uh, co curates the international network Black in Arts and Humanities as, and is involved in a series of initiatives that support Black and queer people across higher education and to provide access to those outputs. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah. I apologize for jumbling and bumbling my way through that. <laughs> this is absolutely fun. Hello. Hello. No, we're, we're super excited. So I think we should clear the air before we do our usual starter and just say that Alex doesn't like musicals. Can you tell her all the ways in which she is a Philistine? <laughs> Why don't you like musicals? Mostly just to wind up Louise. Um, uh, <laughs> no, I don't mind musicals. I'm not the biggest fan of Amdram, which is what Louise always drags me to. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. There's something about, you know what, actually, I lie. The thing I don't like about musicals is the actual tone of, of the voices sometimes. Very shrill. I don't like the compo- um, the combination of people who can, like, act, dance and sing, but not all at 100% all the time. It's just like, oh, babe, just choose one category and go for it. I don't know. I never grew up with them. My mum hates them. So I think I've just been indoctrinated from a young age. Fair. Most people say, I don't like it that they burst into song. That's not realistic. But those same people like Star Trek and Marvel. And I'm like... Oh, yeah, I hate that shit. Like, come on. (laughs) They probably also like stupid, like, you know, rom-coms, which are also equally, like, deluded and fantastical. I agree in many ways, actually. I find contemporary productions of musicals really hard to watch often. Because Mm. now, particularly on film, we tend to get someone who can do one of the three, two of the three. And it really sucks when they're doing the third thing. (laughs) But that's really a contemporary trend. It didn't use don't get me wrong i love certain musicals buffy the musical incredible the episode of Grey's anatomy also incredible but for very different reasons like (laughs) for being the worst premise ever oh my god we've got a tony award winner in the cast we need to use her (laughs) for those who are idiots and haven't been watching Grey's anatomy for 18 seasons like me and alex They decide that Sada Ramirez's character, so Sada Ramirez won a Tony Award for Lady of the Lake in Spamalot, um, which is also an awesome part. And Hannah is nodding because it is a fucking banger of a part that everyone wants to play. They were on Grey's Anatomy for a long time and basically the character then had a car accident and then everything was a musical because that was the only way. <laughs> yeah, this is like when they do the dream sequence in house just because he can he can play the piano so they're like oh yeah we must go to the 1940s and have clowns (laughs) they're like no no one needed this (laughs) it's fine I mean, I needed it. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Similarly, in the Buffy one, when like they made Willow sing, so she was oh like, no, like, that's what I mean. Lines. She can't. She's like Tara. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she just she can't even she can't even dance. She just does like this one hand gesture, and then they they add <laughs> glitter, don't they? Like sparkles. Anyway, sorry. This is what dubbing is for. I love that it's gone out of fashion again. It's very strange. Yeah. It was fine in Moulin Rouge. No one even noticed in Moulin Rouge. And then everyone's like, no, no, you must sing. It must be you. It's like, no, we don't need to hear you. See, this is the thing. Actually, I really enjoyed recently the Taron Egerton Rocket Man. Mm-hmm. That was fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's also because I really enjoy Elton John. Yeah. And he sung most of that. Not live. Being in an animation where he plays, oh. yeah, from Sing. It's a like. Oh my God, the one about the pig singing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I can't remember what character he is in that. Is he the pig? No, he's not the pig. 
I can't remember anyway. No. He plays the piano and sings I'm Still Standing in it. And that is ah. how, how it came to he's me. The go- he's the gorilla. Okay, I see. Yeah. Interesting. You know, yeah. Part of Matthew McConaughey's McConaissance there when he plays that koala who's basically Simon Cowell. Incredible. <laughs> this is not what we wanted to discuss at the spin. There was an X Factor musical called I Can't Sing. Yeah. Why um, is there a musical for is... everything? Every episode is the most obscure musical. <laughs> I mean, it was really shit. Santa Claus we never see. Santa Claus, what's that? Who's he? No one cares for you. Fractionally paid ECR. It's hard Why is there a musical for everything? That, but that, but that is my question, actually, Hannah, to bring us around to actually your work. Yes. Why is there a musical for like everything and anything? What is it about the medium that attracts? <laughs> the cynical answer is that it's inherently commercial. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh yeah, fair. Like, the money okay makes yeah. money <laughs> the grand irony is when it doesn't make money it really doesn't make money musicals that flop take millions with them like it's not, it's not it's not a small thing to invest in because productions are so huge but i think people think musicals are whimsical but that also mm-hmm. they're a vehicle for comedy and for internal commentary And what we aren't comfortable with right now is the idea that that's very hard to do. People sort of go, oh, I want to say something edgy. If I put it in a song, I can slip it in. And it's like, that isn't really how it works. Um, And that's why musicals, tango musicals can be appalling and they can misjudge things and and also it can be incredibly boring. Like, you know, if there's nothing to it, then it is flat because you don't see the fun of musicals, from my point of view, is A, escapism, but also the opportunity to be extra, to be over the top, to enjoy whatever the thing is, or to get into the feelings of whatever something is that we often find hard to express and it can add you know character and identity to people who are often not heard and that can be very useful however (laughs) because the people who write them tend to be the same group of people and tend to be from the same communities largely speaking the more pressure there is to to think critically and excitingly about who should be in and what stories we should tell the more badly wrong that goes because they're not expanding who is writing them and they're not expand like putting a musical scene as we know you know from the 80s to now putting a musical scene in something when you want to get meta has become like the go-to you've seen it buffy we've seen it in house i mean crazy ex-girlfriend is is literally Mm -hmm. that as, as a as a format, you know, and um, Shmigadoon is kind of in that space. The Simpsons has been doing it for 20, 20 years, like. But well, likewise, South Park they understand they're all musical theatre nerds. But mm-hmm. the way you don't have that nerdery, or you just think, well, a song is going to take the edge off it, it doesn't really doesn't really fly. In, in, in certainly in my experience, but I know there's always reasons. People are always going to make musicals because there are always people who want to go see them. Damn it. <laughs> back to cynical I like it yeah you don't like Disney 
at all. You know, the more I'm thinking about it, actually, it is mostly I don't like musicals just because it winds up Louise. Because um, <laughs> I love Grease. I love all the early, you know, I'm just an absolute basic musical bitch. I like Lion King. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I like all the other kind of, you know, is there a Little Mermaid musical? There's got to be. Yeah. Like, yes. The, the Little Mermaid film is the first Renaissance, which is a musical. Yeah. Cool. yeah, great. Love that kind of shit. Don't tell Louise. Louise, close your ears. The Broadway one, they wear Heelys, so it yeah. makes it look like they're swimming. No, so this is how I can't handle it. This is where it stops. But they, they lost loads of money. So, you know, we're under the sea, we're all escape. That's always the risk, though. Is And that's the, also the problem with film musicals, is there's so much magic in mm. musicals that it is a vehicle for special effects on screen. Um, because everything is so extra anyway, you can kind of do whatever the hell you want. That becomes a problem if you want to do stage to screen. How do you recreate those things? How, you can't make the genie do magic in Aladdin. You can't have lions on stage in The Lion King. <laughs> under the sea. <laughs> in the little bird. So instead, you've got Shaggy on rollerblades. Doesn't scream to me a great night out. Though maybe it was. I don't know. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying. On the back of the last 18 months, it sounds incredible. <laughs> I have opinions about them casting Melissa McCarthy as Ursula when it should be fucking Alex Newell, who is amazing. So, discuss. Alex is blank. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, I thought it was a shame they didn't use Queen Latifah again. She did a, the live action version and she was really fun. I think that was a missed opportunity, but Disney always does this though, doesn't it? They find in the live action ones, they find someone who is funny and that is more important than anything else. See Josh Gad, who's also a very good musical theatre star, you know, Book of Mormon, blah, blah, blah. He's he's done it. He knows what he's doing, but that's not what he's doing in Beauty and the Beast, the film musical. He's just, he's there for light relief and for, you know, a little bit of queer potential fakery that got cut out halfway around the world <laughs> like oh was he LeFou I watched this as well yeah yeah, yeah. he was LeFou in Beauty and the Beast and you know that's a very small part in the the original film that's mm-hmm. been beefed up and you know I can see why Gaston is one of the big songs for anyone who's really into Beauty and the Beast there's a really fun queer version of Gaston on YouTube go search it it makes it incredibly camp and funny and I would normally endorse like it already wasn't it it leans into it in a way so that like I use antlers and all of my decorating is like a a declaration of like sexuality for gas and done stuff to it that I think is very fun um but yeah we kind of lose that kind of energy and frisson I hate that word but you know what I mean (laughs) like packing my fingers searching for the word but like you know dynamics it's, it's all about charisma in musicals you have to be able to sell it and that's where you know the the stories about the Russell Crows and so on in sort of contemporary times people who can he sing can't he sing does it matter Pierce Brosnan is attractive so does it matter that he can't hold <laughs> no we get, we get into that headspace very quickly <laughs> and and it becomes about you know weighing up the do we mind Emma Watson's auto-tune because you know everyone wants Hermione to be Belle from Beauty and the Beast as well. I don't know if anyone ever wanted that, but you know, clearly <laughs> it was number one on my agenda actually for such a long time. You know, I made I made one of those YouGov polls about <laughs> it. <laughs> I mean, they literally went library. Who would be? <laughs> <laughs> I know, and um, and this is also to blame for um, 
the fucking herpes of current musical theatre adaptations, James Corden. Like, oh my god, I hate that man so much. The worst. Why is he? Why is he everywhere? Like, so herpes. It's just like. Who does he know? That's actually what I want to know because this is what it used to be like. Like where someone was great friends with someone, so they were they're always cast in stuff. You know, in the studio system in the forties and fifties, you were contracted to a studio, so you were in everything because they'd already paid you. Like it's it's a and I feel a bit like James Corden has like someone. He either has seen someone do something really embarrassing, or. He's like really good friends with someone who has some clout because you know, I thought he was fine in Into the Woods, which lots of people will not agree with, but I thought he was fine because he was playing a character. But when he plays himself, it's awful. Yeah. Like I saw him in the History Boys back in the day and he was great. But, you know, he's, he now plays James Gordon. And, you know, the fat jokes are done. We've, we've, all, we've all heard him do that joke lands every time <laughs> do you know what I mean it's just there's nothing, there's nothing there's nothing further to say about that apart from mm-hmm. on a joke about being a, a big man in something and and then but this is my thing with Jane Corden in general there's just there's nothing further to say like you were saying earlier in terms of it depends upon who is like behind the musicals and then who is shaping them and, and like I just I just oh, I just feel like he's a manifestation of everything that that needs to shift from behind the scenes because he keeps getting put in front of my face I really wish he would he wouldn't be. James Corden. We should do the kazoo. So we have a game. It's called the methodology. Hannah's <laughs> face is so worried. <laughs> yeah, I can play a kazoo. Like what? <laughs> So basically, because we have no musical talent whatsoever, we don't have jingles, so we curate them for our guests. And it's like, name that tune on the kazoo. And uh, somewhere in our minds, it's connected to your research. And you just have to figure that out. I think you got it already. <laughs> That's excellent. Of course, it's the sound of music. <laughs> Yay. The greatest yeah. film of all time, yes. Do you know how often people don't get it, though? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not the sound of music every time, obviously, no, but yeah. No, no, no. no. <laughs> but it should be. Why is it relevant to you, Hannah? <laughs> not like we've just been talking about it for 20 minutes. I work on musicals. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> it could be many things, but yeah, I'm guess I'm guessing it's swirling around on hilltops, causing too much money. <laughs> Potentially, it's, it's a, I feel that's where we're going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we have a lot more kind of tortured reasons for selecting the songs. Yours was very simple. It's like it's from a musical. Whereas sometimes, we, <laughs> sometimes we have to like do some weird like. We got Mental someone gymnastics. coming on in a couple of weeks about. Um, Critical theory. I have no idea what the fuck to play for critical yeah. theory. <laughs> like, mm. Fuck that, man. Um, if you can think of a musical, please let us know. <laughs> yeah. Is there a musical about Derrida? Because I don't know it. <laughs> we could 
think you'd get very drunk if you did shots every time someone says Derrida at a musical theatre conference. I will say that. <laughs> oh, <fuck>. Yeah. <laughs> not, not my scene. Not my Slapping scene. different odds on there. Yeah, for real. For real a thing. For real. Why is Derrida such a thing in musical theatre conferences? I mean, there is a... a because we're a new field relatively speaking there is a, a an inevitable sort of need to connect what we do to other stuff that people recognize and there is certainly going back to you know why people hate musicals and things like that like it, it, <laughs> that wasn't a dig <laughs> but <laughs> academic things are, academics still in the arts still think of the things that are researched as being high art or being, mm-hmm. of, you know, value to society and something that's been written exclusively to entertain and make money is not normally, you know, valued in that aesthetic. So there's definitely a little bit of trying to, you know, validate the research area going mm-hmm. on a little bit. And that's not to say that all Derrida takes on musicals are, you know, completely invalid, but I do think that there is a sort of giving weight Mm-hmm. Music Slap music. a bit of Derrida on it. Yeah, it you know, you you hear you hear Brecht every two seconds, you know, <laughs> and, and you start talking about alienation and blah blah, and like it's necessary sometimes and it's useful sometimes, mm-hmm. but it but mm-hmm. it is a bit of a thing about you know Derrida, Derrida's Derrida, Derrida's. So if we were to think about musicals from the perspective of a non-white European man, mm. um. Where would we go? <laughs> oh, I mean, most people would say Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> that fixed everything, right? That's what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Nothing like writing a musical that's incredibly closely aligned to your own life experience and then starring in it to really represent the identities of people who've been marginalised. Like, I really think that is the pathway to, you know, <laughs> freedom and representation uh, in all art. <laughs> Side eye. <laughs> um, <laughs> the answer is actually small venues. And, you know, historically, I think that the Wiz which is uh, like a semi-Motown reimagining of The Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. is like massively overlooked in in everything, really, because lots and lots of musicals, particularly by Black creators, were shot down when they opened, wherever they were. The exception of that would probably be the musical they had seen in Johannesburg in South Africa, mm-hmm. but that's complicated for other historical reasons, she says, glossing over, you know, Racism, structural colonialism, you know, leapfrogging over that for a moment. The Wiz is really important for me because it is one of the few that survived that is not about real life people. So it takes mm-hmm. the jukebox musical element out and there's nothing wrong with the jukebox musical. I don't have any snobbery about that. But I do think that, you know, being allowed to imagine ourselves in fantastical contexts that are not necessarily unique to our identity characteristics, which is really something we're seeing at the moment where it's like you have to, if you are black, for example, you have to write a musical about your heritage or about your Mm -hmm. community. And that is really important. 
that's not to decry that. But what we still don't see in almost all popular art forms is the opportunity for us to just exist like anyone else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we see that in like discourse about something like Doctor Who as well, where it's like, oh, she's a woman. Is she going to do womany things? And and the same thing is true for people of colour and also for queer people as well. It's like, oh, what are we going to do to be like, hello, this one's a gay. And, um, <laughs> and like, the Wiz doesn't really engage with that apart from being like, here is, a, here is musical theatre songs written loosely in a style that is written by black people. And the grand irony of that is that almost all musical theatre heritage music like from the 30s and 40s is derived from jazz so (laughs) we just don't know that but Mm -hmm. we do know it but we don't talk about that whereas the whiz kind of just ignores all of that stuff and gets on with it and I think that's where that's where I would start and I would look for similar things but also people write new stuff that's great all the time all over the place for people like them and Mm -hmm. it's just because big investors want Mm -hmm. to appeal to the audience they know is secure and that's one of the big transitions I reckon is gonna have to happen you know in the next 20 years is who are the audiences you know I work on Broadway a lot and the people who make up the American population are going to be wildly different by 2040 than they were in 2000 and that just that 40 year shift of demographics is going to have to do something. Pessimistically, I think musical theatre may not flourish <laughs> as we move forward. But, but I think that's because no one knows what to do with it now. For all of the reasons kind of aforementioned. It's so entrenched in something that doesn't exist and cannot exist now. That what, how do you create a form that makes sense when the people who it needs to make sense for are not present. But but yeah, the Wiz, the Wiz is always my answer. Or go to a fringe venue. That's where you'll find cool stuff. Yeah, for sure. There's also a, a massive sort of irony as well. Like Broadway and musicals have also been seen as such a queer space, right? But a lot of them entrench massively mm-hmm. patriarchal values. I know that you've written on Frozen in this respect. How does that irony sort of manifest itself broad, on Broadway? I mean, this this is controversial territory so people will not Ooh, go, go, go. <laughs> go for it. Do, it. Do, it. do it Broadway has been a safe space for white gay men mm-hmm. and some bisexual men and I underline some in bold for a long time but really we have only seen one successful musical on Broadway about a lesbian character and even as it was winning Tony's This Is Fun Home, which is based on Alison Bechdel's memoir, uh, which is a graphic novel, even as it was winning Tony Awards, they were being threatened with closure because they thought that it wasn't going to be marketable. So, you know, even at its reaching peak accolades, and, you know, it's never run for a prolonged time in the UK, unlike many other things. So I think that there's kind of two different elements is the stories and the environment are often very warm and queer positive, often trans positive, though we are seeing lots and lots of examples of transphobia in the industry at the moment. So got got to be careful not to, you know, be hyper positive without sort of 
merit where merit is due but um the industry was kind of built by people who were out in private and not in public particularly in america but therefore was built to support those kinds of realities you know in the 40s and 50s and what so on which aren't the case now but there is still considerable biphobia you know we see a much more representative picture of queer identities in Rent for example which is a Jonathan Larson musical from the mid 90s but we haven't really really moved beyond Rent very much there are a couple of Broadway musicals that are very new that have it a great example of how this doesn't work is Wicked where there is gender diversity and queerness in the books that does not exist in the perfect two little girls, enemies to lovers, best friends, love triangle over a guy. We don't get any of that because they were thinking about writing a musical for teenage girls. And they decided that all of those other things were too adult. Because teenage girls can't like girls, yeah. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. Also, Mm -hmm. teenage girls Mm -hmm. must be girls. There's absolutely no, no, no question of gender fluidity or a sense of you know exploration of self whatsoever you know they have gender archetypes penis loving girls yeah that's what we like yeah but like innocent girls like the penis loving is like underneath it yeah yeah Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they know of it but they don't touch it it. (laughs) just kissing the penis No. It's just it's a winky face as opposed to like a, a goblin cock. Like, I don't know what, that is. what emojis do you use? Like, um, I use the the three like watermarks quite a lot, and um... <laughs> no, I don't. I don't um, do that. And I'm, I'm getting out of my territory because we're talking about penises, and I have no idea. It's more of a comment than a question. Need a good-natured, old-fashioned, lesbian love story The kind of tale my mama used to tell So I really hate Rent. <laughs> Even though it does some good things. Yeah, no, I like, I, I, I would like you to tell me why I'm wrong. Like, do you think it would have been so successful? I know, you're literally gearing up. Do you think it would have been so successful if Jonathan Larson hadn't died? Mm. Horrible question. Probably, I think is the honest answer because by by that time, it had been around for so long. I think I think that it would be foolish to say that obviously it got specific publicity as a result. And you know, Stephen Sondheim, who remains one of the most well respected. Broadway composers, regardless of, ironically, uh, <laughs> commercial merit, um, <laughs> it, um, came out and supported and talked about Jonathan Larson in close proximity to Rent opening. And I think that there is definitely something there about the old guard pouring in love and money to this show. Rent, I find really interesting because it's unfinished. And so it allows people to do things with it. I also think that it is a cult musical because it's a very specific adaptation about a very specific place and time and it survives because it's unfinished and people can reimagine it for their spaces. 
Um, mm-hmm. So, like, I, I know lots of people who don't like rent, and I, I think that if the music doesn't appeal to you, then it's a very long sit. Um, it's a very but like that's true for most musicals like with Les Mis if you don't know it's basically sung through then you get a very horrible shock about 20 minutes in when you realize there's no dialogue (laughs) and I I don't know I think I think it it was right place right time and but that is true for so many musicals and it's just about who becomes interested in them long term it's a difficult one in terms of is it famous because of him and what happened to him um he died for anyone who's not aware like oh spoiler uh, (laughs) sorry like you know (laughs) 10 days 10 days before it opened something like that Uh, but all of his musicals before that had been relatively fringe small venues privately funded or or in fact in american terms publicly funded Mm -hmm. so subsidized um, and Rent was kind of the first shot at a big charm. And I find it really interesting, if you like his music but not Rent, you may not be that person, but if you like his musical music but nope, nope. I was going to say, his songs for Sesame Street are fun. <laughs> but that's a whole different conversation for another. It's all place and time, musicals, you know. Like, would Hamilton have been the success it is if the Obamas hadn't got hold of it before it was finished? We'll never know. They spent most of their administration promoting it. They had it in the White House. They introduced the Tony Awards performance. Barack Obama recorded a song from Hamilton. <laughs> He's the only US president to have been in the top 50 charts. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like... Oh, that must piss Trump off so much. Ah, <laughs> uh, there's still time. I mean, Trump the musical. <gasps> there's a Clinton musical. No, but Trump the musical cast it. No, there's a musical. If you had to choose a song for Donald Trump to record from a musical, what would you go for? What do you think? You know what the grand irony of what I'm about to say. I actually think "You'll Be Back" from Hamilton is a perfect fit because <laughs> it is this like it's written for George the Third, and it's this completely deluded attitude to like the rising up of people and the reliance on old-fashioned values and also just entire self-centeredness and it's like the old-fashioned song in the musical and I think that Donald Trump is all of those things that he's bluster and theatre as well he is the laughs like as much as you know the hard left and you know the radical sides of us don't want to admit that has power he makes people laugh that doesn't make me feel any safer, but we do have to, you know, have to recognise that people watch The Apprentice, like, because <laughs> they found Donald Trump funny, not just because they were brought into the show, you know? Like, I, I, th- I, I think King George is a good alignment. I'll think of the, if there's a better Anisha example, but I think that that's... Is there a Nazi song in um, Sound of Music? That sounds like it's probably... I mean, in the stage show. Like, I don't know, springtime for Hitler? Yeah, I was just thinking, I was just thinking the producers, yeah. but the springtime for Hitler is clever. Like, I, I should say, yeah, <laughs> producers, but um, he's too straight for the producers, though. Do you think he could handle jazz hands with his tiny hands? I don't think so. <laughs> oh, I don't know, it'd just be down by his hips. No, <laughs> it just, it just wouldn't be hands out. <laughs> yeah, well. Fosse's choreography was all about like awkward angles. So if you're just an awkward person, then you're great. You're done. You know what? He would probably be a great fit for. Um, there's a song in the Shrek musical. 
Lord Farquhar has a great song about being like left by his dad and like <laughs> making up for it, uh, <laughs> making up for it and being, you know, a despotic idiot. This sounds perfect. That probably be, it's very silly. Like I, I really enjoy it. That's probably a good fit for it. So that's whatever the song is called in the second act. I will see if it comes back to me. Second act, Shrek. Lord Farquhar only has two songs, so it's the second one. <laughs> that one. <laughs> that one. <laughs> no wonder he's got such a chip on his shoulder. That poor, poor tiny man. <laughs> and the musical, he's on his knees. Oh, he's on his knees. It's really for all the dancing oh. on his knees. It's amazing, actually. Like fucking hell. That's what it's called. Perfect. Yeah, for someone with bad knees, like watching that gives me the absolute fear. I don't know how they do it. There's a lot of it as well. <laughs> like the entire show. Contribute to the discourse. original contribution to knowledge i was wondering this is a shit question but i love it when it comes to musical theater does anything indeed go are there rules i know awful are there rules or that is there is there anything that is inappropriate to be made into a musical is anything are we on the cusp of covid the musical Yes, I mean, probably. I mean, we are oh. like, like they're making a play about Renfield. Like, they're, they're we're definitely on the cusp of a COVID musical. Like, God. yeah, no, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> they're absolutely. I think the thing for me is not that there's topic that shouldn't be done in musicals because I think there is great capacity to do cool stuff with music. And you know, like I saw, oh God, probably 20 years ago now. No. 15 years ago when I was at school, a musical about the truth and reconciliation trials in South Africa. My teacher, who was South African, took us to Edinburgh Fringe and he was like, oh, we have to go see this. And we were all like, oh, yeah. And what was really clever about it was what they did was they used the songs to do the sections in translation in all the different languages that were being used. So it wasn't like the translators stepped out and went, God, I've got a headache it became about how they told the the traumatic stories rather than what was happening behind the scenes. And so I think that, you know, when it's thoughtful, cool stuff can happen. However, <laughs> going back to your the second part of that question, are there rules? I think there really are rules. And I think that that's one of the reasons it might not, the form might not survive because most musicals have a here we are song, an establishing song. These are the characters, this is the location, either one or two. They have a key plot filler, you need to know this song, some sort of exposition. Here's a character I need you to like. Here's a song about why they're cool. Here's a character I need you not to like. Here is a song about why they're a terrible person. And you see what I'm saying. And, and, and not all musicals have to do all of those things. But in my experience, the ones that don't embrace that structure tend not to succeed because the jokes are in understanding the structure. It's a bit like a romance novel or, you know, the best crime fiction. You are invested in the story because you trust that the components you recognise will exist and where a component might be surprising that's really exciting. And that's where, you know, something like Hamilton does pull it off. Hamilton is an exceptionally old fashioned musical, but it has two novel features that it does very well. And because of those novelties, people can buy into it as forward looking. 
And that is, in the, it's all spin, like with Frozen. Two women are talking to each other, ye gads. They've done that already. They've made Brave. They made the princess and the frog, but it's Frozen that people are paying attention to because that's where they put the money. It's where they put the money. And so, yeah, can musicals be about anything? <sighs> it depends on what you want to do with it. I mean, the producers has a very good stab at dealing with Nazism. For example, there are musicals about the lead up to and aftermaths of things like massacres. You know, there's an American Psycho musical, which was incredibly popular. And that follows the Sweeney Todd model of, you know, YOLO murder. <laughs> <laughs> it's really about intention. And I think the thing that we we lose more contemporarily because we can do so much cool stuff on film is when do we need a musical when does a musical, oh, no one needs a musical, but when does um, the musical theatre form lend itself to what the story we want to tell? And that's why Fiddler on the Roof works as a, mm -hmm. a dialogue that involves things like, you know, pogroms and invasion and all sorts of terrible themes and religious persecution and so on. But it isn't pogrom the musical. And I've made that very blunt, that distinction very blunt, but actually the musical is about the community and how community manifests and the darkness is present but it isn't the songs and I think that understanding those kind of come from away as a is another contemporary example of that it was cabaret much earlier you know as an antidote in many ways to Fiddler thinking about that like they deal with these difficult topics and Sarafina which is a, a musical set during apartheid is a, another great example of this but it's all about what is the music for when are the laughs and what are the laughs for? And the thing that I am cautious of is particularly because of music and animation being so massive. And I think The Simpsons has more to do with this and South Park than Disney is grossness and obsceneness has become part of the dialogue of musicals, but it was never part of the musical theatre canon before. And and that that's where we're blurring lines. And I think that's where it could go horribly wrong. Which is going to make me sound like a total prude, but... You know, I think I can see a Jimmy Savile musical coming. I can just see. <laughs> it's ju I just oh. know someone wants to do it. I, I a jukebox musical with the songs of Gary Glitter. That one. I just think it's possible. And the fact that I could have that thought upsets me. It was a few years ago a uh, Moore's Murders musical mm -hmm. at the Fringe. Apparently yeah. it was terrible. I didn't see it. Um, and, you know, London Road walked that line where it was about, which was at the National, which is a verbatim musical, which means they wrote songs to the speech intonation of real people. So the music sounds like they are speaking and the actors had earpieces of the real people playing their lines to them mm. the whole way through the run in order to directly imitate. And, you know, like, but it, it's possible, but... It, it's also dangerous as hell. Chipple. I've just finished a chapter that's going in an edited collection about serial killers on screen about London Road. So I'm just like, ah, yeah, really cheerful. Literary scholars be like, In a letter I received from you two weeks ago, I noticed a comma in the middle of a phrase. It changed the meaning. Did you intend this? We're speaking a lot about like musical theatre and like, if there's no future to musical theatre and stuff like that. But I was wondering if you could talk to us about the history of yeah, the um, musical theatre, like the past. Mm -hmm. And so what was it like to be a black performer specifically in Hollywood musicals? Difficult. I can imagine. 
shit. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, in the 1930s, you were a servant or a character of a derogatory status of some kind. The Motion Picture Production Code was introduced in the late 1930s to qualify what could and couldn't go into film. Now, specifically generated from a religious point of view. So married couples could not sit on the same bed. They had to be fully clothed and sit on different beds. Watch a film from the 1940s and you'll suddenly realise married couples never sit next to each other when they're in their bedroom. Like, that's a whole thing. But one of the things that came with that was overtly political issues, issues to do with sexuality and also to do with multi-racial marriages. I can never say this word. Anti-miscegenation? Nope. No, miscegenation, yeah. That's it. There we go. Um, Laws. And Mm -hmm. one of the problems in musicals, as we kind of highlighted earlier, is that they're incredibly heterosexual. They are focused on, you know, straight families, straight love stories, man and woman all in love, doesn't quite work out, but they get married in the end. Like that is, that's one of the reasons that The Wizard of Oz is so interesting as a queer text, because there's no heterosexual romance in it. And so going back to the black performers, that really cuts out a lot of roles because you cannot be a person of colour, specifically a black person, but really a person of any non-white, in quotes, background and be in a role that is related to or likely to have a relationship with someone who is not from the same ethnic group. So that that's kind of where that starts. And I mentioned the Motion Picture Production Code because they were partly to blame for that. But also because in the paperwork that they used to file, black performers, again, specifically in this instance, were filed under props and not under the cast. And so that's where you start. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What the fuck? Sorry. Pause. You'd think I'd stop being shocked these days at the things you find out and this kind of yeah. stuff. What the fuck? It's, it's the thing of like totally unsurprised, but fuck. But also, like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it, it is. That's where you start. You start with servant derogatory point of view, or Mm -hmm. if you were lucky to get a role with a name, which itself was unusual, you wouldn't have been listed as a character. And that only really ceases to be true when people like Louis Armstrong start playing themselves because he's so famous. But that's the 40s we're talking about there. So in the 40s, Lena Horne, who I've done quite a lot of work on, comes along and she is walking on the shoulders of many other famous people, Bilbo Jangles Robinson, Ethel Waters, uh, Catherine, Kathleen, excuse me, Dunham, various people have been around and making movies before this. But she manages through, depending on who you ask, her dad and through her agent and various influences to negotiate a great contract or what looks like a great contract, a multi-film contract with MGM, who made most of the big film musicals. So we're talking, you know, Singing in the Rain and Meet Me in St. Louis. They made The Wizard of Oz. They made loads of the film adaptations. If it had Gene Kelly in it, basically, it was an MGM film, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, Judy Garland, if it had either of them in it, it was an MGM film, really. And they, they were at the height of musical theatre on film from the late 30s through to the late 50s. What happened through her was that feature roles for black performers and it isn't just her I should just say but her and others including the Nicholas Brothers and other non-white performers working at 20th Century Fox 
end up getting a song here and there where they would come on and perform. So in 43, when she gets her contract, she does two all black film musicals. So film musicals where all the people in the cast are black, but no one behind the cameras is. And those are both hugely successful. One is an adaptation of a stage musical and one is an original musical called Stormy Weather, which lots of people will know the title song from. In those, you see she has this amazing potential to do all sorts of stuff. And basically from that point on, she becomes an in- a person who just appears and goes away again. And really, that is Black representation in musicals until The Wiz, really. There are a few exceptions, which musical theatre nerds will no doubt highlight. <laughs> but really, historically, it was productions about blackness or not. That was what it, what it looked like to be a black performer. And there are some bit parts that begin to emerge. There's a character called Bloody Mary in uh, South Pacific. She's supposed to be, in quotation marks again, Tonkinese which we would now align with Vietnamese identity, but was played by an African-American woman in that. Kiss Me Kate, the thing I'm writing a book about, has two black characters in it who are in what I'm going to call semi-servile roles. So they are playing the maid and the dresser, but that is kind of not relevant to the story. So in some ways it's a step forward. And also they carry major song roles, which was unusual. Mm -hmm. So they carry the opening numbers of the both the first two acts on the town, had a go a little bit earlier. So this is the 40s we're talking about, where the idea of having a person of colour on stage is becoming possible. In the 50s, we see more expansion of casts, but not really, not really, because civil rights are still happening. Well, it's happening. And people don't want to be political because that doesn't sell money. Sell money? That doesn't bring in money. (laughs) (laughs) That was sell tickets. And bring in money. Make money. money, Sell tickets. Sell tickets. Make money. Yeah. (laughs) We were there. We were there. We we follow. We follow. So so it's it's a really, a really complicated time because Mm. Elvis Gerald and to some extent Billie Holiday and Louis Armstrong and Miles Davis and you know lots of prolific black artists who are in popular music or in jazz are recording the songs from musicals and making them popular but they aren't in them. And that's that's kind of where the tension sits, unless the musical is about racism. Someone's going to yell showboat when they're listening to this. It was written in 1927 and um, deals with segregation laws in the plot. Mm -hmm. Yes, showboat happened. But, (laughs) you know, you, you asked about what performance quality of life was like. And I think it was different for men and women as well. But it was very much about how you appealed and not getting out of line. Lena Horne had her career shut down because she was, in quotes, difficult, which meant she asked for the terms of her contract to be honoured. Um, <laughs> what the fuck, right? You know, Hazel Scott, who was a pianist, got written out of film for being a communist. Paul Robeson is perhaps the most famous example of a musical theatre actor who, I mean, he did many things, but, you know, had his passport confiscated, wasn't allowed to leave America, wasn't able to perform on stage. You know, these th- these things happen. But, you know, intersectionality and the, the overlapping of identity characteristics meant that black performers and Asian-American performers particularly were targeted. And, you know, I haven't mentioned Asian-American performers because that's not my area of expertise. But, you know, the 50s become very difficult for Asian-American performers when there's a law introduced that is reviewing the rights of Asian-Americans that changes all work permits 
And so there's a whole other whole other dialogue that's not not my area of expertise there about you know experience and identity and that yeah it's it's not my field of expertise so I'm not going to speak to that inaccurately um but yeah it was it was tough you could make good money if you were prepared to toe the line but you had to accept that you were always going to be a backing singer and never get an important or fun part really unless everyone else in the cast was black and then you get into other racial dynamics about you know misogynoir where darker skin they're always vilified and you know there's so many layers to it so that's a very long answer to your question yeah what do you mean it's like not really easy to talk about and it's actually really complex how how ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) who'd have thought who'd have thought oh my god who'd have thought that there'd be issues in musicals who thought that racial dynamics on stage in musicals would be so complex no one had any ideas because you know We've forgotten to ask a couple of actually yeah, very we are, we things are that we do. We need your Tinder bio if you yeah. would happen to have it. This is in the introduction to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, everyone in the conference is talking about Derrida and Brecht. What are you on about? How would you seduce us at a conference, get us to talk to you more? Would we swipe left or right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, do you want me to just say it? Yes. Yeah. On you go. Well, uh, my academic bio. You could sing it. I'm not going to (laughs) my favorite bio would be I'll ruin your favorite film but you'll like it Mm. okay Okay. I'm intrigued okay well what if I said that my favorite film is The Sound of Music ruin it for me (laughs) (laughs) go for it go (laughs) tear it to pieces I could fucking destroy that film (laughs) I hated making that film. That normally does the trick. <laughs> Do you actually? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Horrible to Julie Andrews at the beginning. And then they became friends. There you go. <laughs> Done. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think I think what I tend to find, the reason I say that is because people always start testing me on every musical there's ever been. And, um, which is always fun. and you're like I will fucking ruin every one of these <laughs> well it's a really weird thing where you know academics are known for our nicheness I'm expected to mm. know you know a hundred years of content as though I'm an expert in all of it you know and globally like that's why I always highlight Broadway because <laughs> I'm like oh my god this is I mean I know every single poem of the 21st century thankfully <laughs> it's because it's only 21 years yeah I mean Every bit of literature written between 1837 and 1901. Yeah, I'm there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah, but yeah. I've read every poem. <laughs> I end up being like, oh, well, this is why that person is problematic. Oh, you like Tarantino? Oh, I'm sorry. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Do you enjoy the foot rapist? No, he's not a rapist, but... <laughs> You know, it's often like that, or it's like a Marvel film, or, you know, there's always something where it's like a did you know, someone once said to me, oh, my favourite film is Ben-Hur, and I was like, wow, okay. I was like, you know, they brought in, like, animal protection laws because of of Ben-Hur, because of how many horses died in how many horses have to die for your entertainment (laughs) i have like a depressing soundbite about most films (laughs) my god exciting i love that i i enjoy that like i think i'd swipe right i'd swipe like just to keep you in check you know 
yeah, if only to, sh- to introduce it to other people and get people to talk about films and then just watch them crumble, be great. Wait, what's your favourite film? Oh, I don't have a favourite film. It's much, much, much safer. <laughs> <laughs> Give me one, I'll ruin it. <laughs> you know what? I actually have no idea anymore. It's terrible. It's probably something silly like a Disney film. Like, I mean, not that that sounds really trite, but it's probably... He's a Nazi, did it. Yeah. Done. <laughs> Done. You're welcome. <laughs> you got made after Disney died. See how you like it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah this is the thing. I can do it to myself. That's one of the one of the, the sad things about being musical theatre scholar is I'm like, ah, uh, that guy is involved in me too and no one knows about it. Uh, <laughs> you know, no. like like there's a load of that kind of stuff. The problem, I mean, this is the thing, musical theatre, they wrote this big expose about how all the shows are terrible from like the 40s and 50s. That was like three years ago or something like that in the New York Times. And everyone was like, oh, we should never revive Carousel ever again. And it's like, well, I'm pretty sure that some of the major arts organisations whose name will remain redacted should not be paying millions of dollars to people who have opened offences against them to get rid of the cases pretty certain that there is a problem (laughs) pretty certain it's not it's not you know gendered issues in a 1940 show we never need to put on again i'm pretty certain it's sexual abuse in the workplace currently like yeah big time not to be difficult (laughs) not to be difficult but maybe we shouldn't care so much about what's ha- what happened then, but look at now, look at now. Maybe, maybe protect people now. Heaven forbid. God forbid. But we've got Hamilton. Yeah, the saviour. <laughs> that bastion of representation for all mm-hmm. people that aren't men. <laughs> and in fact, aren't Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> so pleased for us <laughs> that we've uh, so come that far. Thanks, guys. Cheers, everyone. We're in the money. We're in the money. Actually, we're not. The AHRC has not been returning our calls and apparently Silly Little Mean Casts are not within the remit of the Welcome Trust. So if you want to support our Silly Little Podcast and maybe get some bonus content and stickers, you can find us on Patreon as well, My Praxis. And for a limited time only, £10,000 and you can submit us to Ref. Otherwise, catch us on Twitter at Law My Praxis. Rate, review, subscribe. Thank you. Bye.